This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. China would, quote, not hesitate to start a war if anyone tried to split Taiwan from the mainland. China's defence minister told Lloyd Austin, his American counterpart. Mr Austin, meanwhile, asked China to, quote, refrain from further destabilising actions. In a speech at the Shangri-La security meeting in Singapore, he accused China of taking a, quote, more coercive and aggressive approach to its territorial claims. The German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, will visit Kiev this month with his French and Italian counterparts, Emmanuel Macron and Mario Draghi, Bild reported. Mr Schultz hopes to meet Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky before Germany hosts the G7 summit, which begins on June 26th. The Chancellor has been strongly criticised for not visiting Ukraine since the war began. He recently said he would not travel for a mere, quote, photo op with Mr Zelensky. Intense street fighting is ongoing in Severodonetsk, with both Russia and Ukraine likely suffering, quote, high numbers of casualties, according to Britain's Defence Ministry. Britain said Russia is running out of high-precision missiles, forcing it to turn to inefficient weapons that carry a high risk of collateral damage. On Saturday, a large fire broke out at a chemical plant in the city because of an oil leak following Russian shelling, the regional governor said. During an unannounced visit to Kyiv, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, said that she would offer an opinion on Ukraine's bid to join the EU by the end of next week. The Commission, the EU executive arm, will reportedly say that Ukraine should become an official candidate. Actual accession negotiations would take many years. But many of the EU's 27 governments, all of whom must approve a bid, disagree. Thousands of Americans took to the street to advocate for gun reform in around 450 separate protests on Saturday, with at least 40,000 demonstrators attending the largest march in Washington, D.C. Americans expressed their frustration with the country's lax gun laws after a recent spate of high-profile mass shootings. Happily, a modest gun reform deal may now be close in Congress. The average petrol price in America reached $5 per gallon, the highest ever. The record came as Joe Biden slammed ExxonMobil, an energy giant, for making, quote, more money than God last year. Data on Friday showed that consumer prices in America were 8.6% higher in May than one year earlier, the highest inflation rate in more than four decades. The news may prompt the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates more aggressively when it meets next week. Iran and Venezuela signed a 20-year cooperation plan, pledging to work together on oil, defence and agriculture, and announcing regular flights between Tehran and Caracas. The two autocracies have grown close in recent years, united by a dislike for America, which has imposed painful sanctions on both of them. Speaking in Tehran on Friday, Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's president, described the two countries as pioneers of a new world order. And phrase of the week, the octopus doctrine, as described by Naftali Bennett, Israel's prime minister, discussing his approach towards Iran. Quote, 
We no longer play with the tentacles. With Iran's proxies, we've created a new equation by going for the head. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Macron's majority on the line. Less than two months after they re-elected Emmanuel Macron president, French voters are returning to the polls to select a new parliament. Two round elections in the 577-seat National Assembly take place on June 12th and 19th. Any candidate who secures the votes of at least 12.5% of registered voters on Sunday qualifies for the second round the following week. Five years ago, Mr. Macron and his centrist friends bagged 60% of the seats. This time, polls suggest he will not only lose seats, but possibly his majority. The reason is the surge of Jean-Luc Mélenchon's radical left alliance, the snappily named New Popular Environmental and Social Union, which has swallowed the socialists, communists, and greens. Nupes is unlikely to win a majority itself. But if Mr. Macron loses his, Mr. Mélenchon's alliance will be the biggest opposition force in Parliament and keen to make life difficult for the second-term president. The Lingering Influence of the Sicilian Mafia The bomb that killed Giovanni Falcone, an anti-mafia judge, on Sicily 30 years ago was so powerful that it was registered by seismologists 200 kilometers away. Two months later, Paolo Borsellino, another prosecutor, met a similar fate. Both men died at the hands of the local branch of the mafia known as Cosa Nostra. Though the group's influence over Sicily has since waned, its influence will still be visible at local elections on Sunday. One race is for mayor of Palermo, the capital. The winner will control the distribution of national and EU money on the island. The favorite, Roberto Lagala, has been endorsed by two politicians who have served prison sentences for aiding the mafia, including Salvatore Cufaro, a former governor. Barred from ever holding public office again as a result of his crimes, Mr. Cufaro has nonetheless vigorously campaigned for Mr. Lagala. And last Wednesday, a candidate running for a council seat was arrested over ties to gangsters. Thirty years after the murders, Palermitanos still cannot forget the mob. Thailand chills out about weed. The strongmen, Democrats and communists running Southeast Asia, have long agreed, cannabis is evil. In Indonesia, possession may land you in jail for up to four years. In Laos, between three months and life. In Singapore, trafficking the drug is punishable by death. Until Thursday, Thailand was no exception, slapping prison terms of up to 15 years on those found in possession of marijuana. But from this weekend, after a change in the law, Thais can possess, grow, and consume marijuana-infused food and drink without fear of prosecution. Smoking the drug is still banned. The government is also freeing 4,000 prisoners serving time for weed-related offenses and distributing 1 million marijuana plants to farmers. A mix of pragmatism, money, and politics has inspired this wave of progressiveness. Decriminalization is popular among Thais, many of whom already consume cannabis in some form. 
Businesses are keen to get a slice of what could become a multi-billion dollar industry. And the main advocate on the move, Anutin Chanvirakul, the current health minister and aspiring prime minister, hopes his reforms might boost his chances of reaching the highest office. The Rise of Muslim Superheroes Kamala Khan, a crime-fighting Pakistani-American with superpowers of stretch and strength, was Marvel's first Muslim superhero. This week, the teenager from New Jersey was given her own live-action show on Disney+, Plus, Ms. Marvel. That marks something of a breakthrough. Representations of Islam in comics have long been scarce. In 1944, Kismet, an early Muslim hero, briefly appeared in print fighting the Nazis. From the 1970s, more characters showed up, but they were often caricaturish villains, typically sheiks or bandits. More recently, Muslim characters, such as Ms. Marvel, have tended to be written or drawn by Muslims themselves. A reboot of Kismet imagines the hero as a political activist. Kahera, a hijab-clad Egyptian superheroine, targets misogynists and patronizing white feminists in Cairo. But with a sizable portion of the industry's fan base railing against what some consider tokenism, Ms. Marvel will have to fight hard to prove herself. Weekend Profile The Gupta Brothers Ajay, Atul, and Rajesh Gupta were not born in South Africa. But within 20 years of arriving, they had allegedly pulled off one of the most remarkable corruption schemes in history. The three brothers stand accused of orchestrating a mind-boggling scam of state capture in the 2010s, in which at least 49 billion rand, or $3.2 billion, in public money and contracts was apparently channeled into or through Gupta-linked firms, making the brothers fabulously wealthy. Last Monday, Atul and Rajesh, pictured, were arrested in Dubai in relation to a case being pursued by South African authorities. The Guptas have denied any wrongdoing and described the allegations as politically motivated. Ajay has not yet been arrested. The trio grew up in Saharanpur, a sleepy town in northern India. Their father, a small-time businessman and trader, urged them to go out into the world to make their fortunes. Atul, the middle son, arrived in South Africa around the fall of apartheid and began a business assembling cheap computers. Within a few years, his brothers had joined him, and together they began to forge political connections in their adopted homeland. That soon paid off in the form of public contracts, such as one in 2002 to supply computers to government-run schools. They seemed quickly to settle on a modus operandi of pocketing cash while delivering little. Journalists found that the computers did not work as promised. Few friendships were as profitable for the Guptas as that with Jacob Zuma. The brothers met Mr. Zuma in the early 2000s when he was the country's deputy president. The Guptas regularly invited Mr. Zuma into their Johannesburg home and employed his son as a director of some of their businesses. After winning the presidency in 2009, Mr. Zuma repaid the favors in spades, ultimately handing over, in effect, the keys of state. The Guptas secured control of the boards of huge state-owned firms, including the electricity, rail, and ports monopolies. Investigations by public watchdogs and a judge-led inquiry have reported that by around 2015, the Guptas were able to have cabinet ministers appointed and fired. 
Yet the brothers seem to have made a fatal mistake. Most of the time, bribe payers follow an unwritten code. Steal only as much as you can before attracting attention and getting caught. To the Guptas, this seemed to be just one more rule to be broken. Having left South Africa in 2016, two years before Mr. Zuma stepped down, Atul and Rajesh, who now face a contentious extradition fight, may have an unhappy return. The winners of this week's quiz. Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz, and sincere apologies to readers who were sent an old question in Friday's email newsletter. The winners, chosen at random from each continent, were Asia, Aram Kim, Bucheon, Republic of Korea. North America, Christian Hechimovic, Squamish, Canada. Central and South America, Michael Tanaka and Beatriz Fortes, Brasilia, Brazil. Europe, Eric Mashkalesen, Helsinki, Finland. Africa, Hasit Raja, Nairobi, Kenya. Oceania, Ian Hamilton, Perth, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of David Tennant, Earl Grey, Shirley Chisholm, Jane Fonda, and In the Heights. The theme is Novels by the Brontes. The Tennant of Wildfell Hall, Agnes Grey, Shirley, Jane Eyre, and Wuthering Heights. And visit the Espresso app for our new weekend crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Jeanette Rankin, who was born on June 11th in 1880. You can no more win a war than you can win an earthquake. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening. <laughs>